0: RLC WVPH FM, Scataway. It's the Core News for the week of Monday, November eighth. Today on the Core News, we've got election results. You'll be hearing what's been happening, both at the state level, the local level, and the federal level. And you'll find out how women fared in this most recent election. You'll hear some environmental news, and of course. The latest in entertainment from our friend, the Sherman Tank. But first, here's Amy Bronstein with a core news, war update.
1: In Iraq on October 31st, the Iraqi government shut down a Baghdad branch of Baghdadia, a Cairo-based TV station known for being critical of Prime Minister Norway al-Maliki's government. Employees said the government cut the power during a news broadcast and soldiers arrived suddenly, ordering them out of the building without even time to get their glasses. Soldiers arrested two journalists suspected of working with terrorists, but Baghdadia insists the arrests are political. The repressive action follows the violent taking of a Catholic church in Baghdad in October by Al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, a homegrown branch of the terrorist organization. The hostage-takers had called the TV station to announce their demands for the release of the hostages, which Baghdadia played over the air. On November 8th, a British archbishop called for Iraqi Christians to leave their country following the bloody attack on a church in October which left 50 dead. Archbishop Athanasios Dawood called on the United Kingdom to offer Iraqi Christians refugee status because of the perceived inability of the Iraqi government to protect them. There has been a Christian presence in Iraq since the first century AD, but the offer reflects growing concern for the safety of Iraqi Christians in a post-U.S. invasion Iraq. Also on Friday, November 5th, what is being called Britain's Abu Ghraib case opened. Michael Fordham, a lawyer representing 200 Iraqi detainees, charged British troops with torturing detainees through starvation, beatings, electroshock, prolonged periods of nakedness, and worse, some of which was caught on videotape. The mistreatment is believed to be responsible for the deaths of at least nine detainees. In Afghanistan on Monday, November 1st, An entire Afghan police unit in the Ghazni province defected to the Taliban. All 19 policemen, their guns, food, and trucks had vanished, and when the Afghan army arrived at the police station three hours later, they found it smoking and abandoned. A spokesman for the Taliban said the police had made a deal with the Taliban and had already melted away into the countryside, though Musa Khan Akbarzada, the provincial governor, said they would continue to search for the missing officers. The ability of the Taliban to pay a much higher wage than the Afghan police has long been a problem in maintaining a police and military force loyal to the civilian government. On Friday, November 5th, Yusuf Ahmed, an Afghan soldier, apparently turned against his U.S. trainers, killing two American GIs at a joint American-Afghan military base. On Saturday, military officers confirmed they were investigating the incident, and a Taliban spokesman claimed that Ahmed had sought and was given protection by the Taliban. I'm Amy Bronstein with the Core News War Update.
2: Hi, this is Sean Bones, and we're listening to the news on 90.3 The Core.
1: That's right, we are listening to the news, and thanks
0: to Amy for bringing us that war update. Now we're going to find out what the results were of the election that took place last Tuesday, November 2nd. And we the Core News hope you voted. If you didn't vote and if you aren't registered to vote, then please take the time right now to register to vote. You can do that pretty easily by going to areyouvoting.rutgers.edu. You can register now and be prepared for the next election. One of the most interesting local races was South Amboy. And maybe the race wasn't quite as interesting as the way it ended. At stake... In South Amboy is a mayoral seat. That's been held by John O'Leary, known as Jack O'Leary, for the last 24 years. However, he decided not to run for a seventh term this year. So the election came down to Fred Henry and independent Mary O'Connor. The election rested on one vote. Henry ended up with 1,128 votes, and Mary O'Connor got 1,127. Yes, a difference of only one vote. So if anybody ever says to you, eh, one vote doesn't matter. Don't tell that to Mary O'Connor. However, she is planning on filing for a recount. She has until November 17th, and she has said she will. She hasn't announced exactly when she will be. The election night was kind of exciting for her. There was a gap between Mary O'Connor and Fred Henry. It was getting closer and closer. By the end of Tuesday night, she was down 14 votes. And then on Wednesday, after the absentee ballots were counted, she was down by only three. Then on Friday... The Middlesex County Board of Elections awarded her another seven provisional ballot votes, and Henry got five, and that was when it came down to a single vote, according to the Middlesex County Board of Elections. If she does file for a recount, the ballots will be counted by hand in front of lawyers representing all parties involved, and what what will happen then is that the results will be given to a judge, and at that point, the sides can begin to appeal, and they will appeal individual votes and look at the votes to see which ones they think should or should not be counted. And that process could drag on for a long time, or it could be settled quickly. We'll just have to wait and see. In Middlesex County, there were three freeholder positions up for election. That's a three-year term. And the incumbent Democrats won. Those are Stephen J. Pete Delina, Christopher Rafano, and Blanquita Valenti. The Republicans who were running were Richard Frank, David Rosenthal, and Jordan Rickards. And once again, the Democrats won. For County Clerk, which is a five-year term, Elaine Flynn, the Democrat, beat out Harold Kane, the Republican. And for Sheriff, that is a three-year term, Democrat Miltred Scott beat Republican Keith B. Hackett. In Carteret, Daniel Ryman, who is a Democrat, beat the Republican Ken Freeman for the four-year mayoral term. And the Democrats beat out the Republicans for their council. In Cranberry... Two committee seats were up for uh, election, and Republican Daniel Mulligan and Democrat Glenn Johnson won those seats. There was a public question in Cranberry. The question was, shall the township investigate contracting with a garbage collection company to provide residential garbage collection and charge the residents a flat quarterly fee? And the residents voted yes by a vote of 669 to 409. In nearby Dunnellan, there were two three-year council terms up and... An independent, Jason Salento, and a Republican, Joseph Petraca, won those. In East Brunswick, in a surprising move, there were three four-year terms up for election, and the Republicans won. One of them was Camille Ferraro, who is the who is an incumbent, and the other two were Michael Hughes and James Wendell. They beat out incumbents and Democrats, Catherine Diem and Ed Luster and Democratic newcomer Peter Grimondo. In Edison, there was a one-year unexpired term that was won by Democrat Robert Carbinchak or Karabinczak. In Highland Park, there was also a one-year unexpired term that was for mayor, and Stephen Nolan won that. He's a Democrat. He beat out an independent, Dominic Sermonaro. For council, Democrats also prevailed in Highland Park, those being Gail Mittler and John Erickson. In Metuchen, Democrats also won. There were two three-year council terms. That was James Wallace Jr. and Dorothy Rasmussen. In Middlesexboro, there were also two three-year council seats, and Democrats won there as well. Also in Milltown, where Republicans have been doing pretty well, the two three-year council seats went to Democrats George Murray and Richard Ryan. They beat out Independent Randy Farkas and the Republican incumbents, Stacey Waters and Brian Hardo. So... In some places where the party is changing from Democrat to Republican here in New Jersey, kind of went the opposite way in Milltown, which has been kind of a Republican stronghold for a while. In New Brunswick, longtime Mayor Jim Cahill won again. He won a four-year term. He appears to have been running unopposed. And in the council, also running unopposed, were the Democrats Kevin Egan and Rebecca Escobar. They both won four-year terms. In North Brunswick, Democrats also prevailed in the council. Catherine Nicola and Ralph Andrews, both incumbents, beat out Republican newcomers Carmine Genovese and Richard Pender. In Oldbridge, there was an interesting public question. Nothing else was up for election in Oldbridge, but the question was, shall the township place a tax of two cents per $100 of assessed value for 10 years for conservation, recreation, or historic preservation? And in a rather overwhelming vote, Oldbridge said no. 5,032 votes to 3,921. And right here in Piscataway, there were a number of council seats in various wards for four-year terms. In Ward 1 for council, Brian Hardenberg, Democrat and incumbent, beat out Brian Sabo by a pretty significant margin, 1,703 to 820. In the second ward, Democrat James Bullard w- beat Democrat Bob Bostick for a uh, for a four year term in Ward Two. In Ward Three, Democrat incumbent Stephen Kahn beat Carlton J. Bruce Sr., who was a Republican. In the fourth ward, Michelle Lombardi, who was the Democratic incumbent, beat out Republican Damon Montesano. So the Democrats swept Piscataway. In South Plainfield, it was a different story. The mayor. Who will serve for four years will be matthew anesh and he is a republican he beat out democrat michael english for council the republican incumbents won they are raymond rusnak and timothy mcconville and they beat out jeffrey williams and john sorrento they were the democratic challengers in south river the election is possibly still too close to call we haven't heard any any word on that but at last count The Republican incumbents, who were James Hutchison and Michael Trenga, were ahead. So we'll let you know when there is any word on that. So across the country, a lot of places were flipping from Democratic to Republican. And here in Middlesex County, a few places flipped that way. One or two switched the other way. But mostly, we remained largely Democratic. Now to find out more about national election results, here's Rebecca Berkowitz to let us know how women did in
3: this most recent election. According to a report issued by the Center for American Women in Politics, the election on this past Tuesday appears to have produced the first drop in the number of women elected to Congress in more than 30 years, although some races remain too close to call. Preliminary results at the state legislative level indicate that we may see the largest drop in the number and percentage of women serving since the CAWP began tracking the numbers in 1971. This election is a wake-up call for American women, said Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women in Politics. Our country faces tremendous challenges, and we need all of America's talent at the table. New Jersey currently has no female senators and no female representatives in the House, but previously has had a female governor. New York has one female senator and six female representatives in the House, and Pennsylvania has two female senators and currently has 19 representatives in the House. According to the Center for American Women in Politics fact sheet, in 2010, 1,811, or 24.5%, of the 7,382 state legislators in the United States are women. Women hold 437, or 22.2% of the 1,971 state senate seats and 1,374, 25.4% of the 5,411 state house seats. Since 1971, the number of women serving in state legislatures has more than quintupled. If you're interested in more information, about the Center for American Women in Politics, please visit their website at cawp.rutgers.edu. I'm Rebecca Berkowitz for The Core News.
0: And to round out our election coverage and results reporting, I'll let you know what happened in our local congressional seats. In the 12th District, Democratic incumbent Rush Holt beat out independent newcomer Kenneth Cody and Republican challenger Scott Suprell. In the 6th District, Democratic incumbent Frank Pallone beat his competition Tea Party Republican, and a little. When we come back, we're going to hear some environmental news from our very own Nana. And right now, you're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. The Core News will be back right after this. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. This week on The Core News, we've been talking about election results, both our local elections and our federal congressional elections. If you missed any of that, then you can tune in later via the interwebs and just go on the Internet to www.thecore.fm and download our fabulous podcast. Or even just listen to it right there on the website. Next, we're going to have some environmental news from Nana, right here on 90.3 The Core.
2: And it's good to be here. This is the 90.3 The Core Eco News Update. Well, we're going to head towards the Delaware River. Uh, the Delaware River Basin Commission announced that it has ended its lower basin drought warning for the watershed that is downstream from Montague in Sussex County. The Delaware River Basin Commission Director, Carol R. Collier, said the lower basin drought warning that was in effect for since September 24th ended October 31st because Beltsville and Blue Marsh Reservoirs extended their drought warning storage levels for 30 consecutive days. She also said, although we are no longer in a lower basin drought warning, we still encourage the wise use of water by our basin basin industries, businesses, and citizens. Water conservation should be practiced at all times and not be limited to dry periods. Now we're going to go to Edison. That's not too far away. The Edison Wetlands Association is a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting human health and the environment through conservation and the very important cleanup of hazardous waste sites. To learn more about Edison Wetlands Association, you can visit www.edisonwetlands.org. Also in Edison, the Edison Township Council made the decision recently and voted against allowing a religious group to apply to the state Green Acres program for permission to open an access road to a portion of land they own within the Dismal Swamp. However, there is a hiking trail in the Dismal Swamp and the trail marker and entrance can be found at the end of Liberty Street off of Central Avenue in Metuchen. Look for the trail sign. It's a nice time of year to go for a walk. I'm going there soon. I'll let you know what it's like. And now the eco News is headed straight to the toilet. USA Today is reporting that Kimberly Clark, the huge producer of paper products, is testing marketing the tubeless toilet paper roll in two big box stores in the Northeast. Tubeless rolls are reportedly available in area Walmarts and Sam's Clubs. These tubeless test market rolls will sit Still fit on your toilet paper holders. Didn't I tell you the toilet is where we were headed? Better for the environment they are and also cheaper to produce for, the ki- for Kimberly Clark. Since we are in the toilet, I want to commend Livingston Student Center for fixing the dripping faucet in the ladies' room I had reported to InfoDesk a few weeks ago. Here, here. So if you do report the leaky faucet, people, chances are it will get fixed and then you are helping to conserve water. Yeah, now out the toilet we go.
4: This is MC Lars and You're listening to The Core News. Did I say that right?
2: That's right. Listen to
0: Nana and report those drippy faucets. That was Nana with your environmental news. Next, we're going to take it just a tone lighter and we're going to have an environment, not an environmental update. We just had an environmental update. Now we're going to have some entertainment news. With your friend and mine, The Sherman Tank, right here on 90.3 The Core.
4: This is The Sherman Tank with another rundown of all the latest and greatest entertainment news. Let's start this segment off with some continuing stories I've been keeping track of over the past few weeks. First off, let's talk Hobbit. The two-part movie series has been officially given the green light. That officially means that, unless the production gets hit by a meteoroid, there's really nothing left standing in the way of the movie being finished within a few years. Peter Jackson, who's now officially signed on to direct, has announced most of the cast list. Martin Freeman will star as the main character Bilbo Baggins. I didn't say Morgan Freeman, I said Martin Freeman, different things. Ian McKellen and Andy Serkis are all but confirmed to reprise the roles of Gandalf and Gollum, respectively, from the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. The company of dwarves that travels with Bilbo throughout the book will be played by Richard Armitage, Aidan Turner, Graham McTavish, John Kalen, Stephen Hunter, Mark Hadlow, and Peter Hamilton, with five more dwarves yet to be announced. But what about locations? The original Lord of the Rings movies were shot entirely in New Zealand, and Jackson had planned on shooting The Hobbit there as well. But after complications arising with the New Zealand Actors Union boycott, Jackson threatened to move the production to Eastern Europe instead. The New Zealand government got involved and signed a contract with Jackson to keep the production in the country, guaranteeing the director additional tax rebate offers and a $10 million marketing deal, among other things. Now that the wheels are finally in motion, I'll be sure to keep you guys all updated on the exciting Hobbit formation over the next few months. Another movie I've been following recently is Alfonso Cuaron's sci-fi movie Gravity, which you might remember me talking about over the past few segments. It's that one where Angelina Jolie and Natalie Portman were both offered the star and role and then turned it down. They finally managed to land Sandra Bullock in the role, but now they might lose the only cast member they've been sure of having the whole time, Robert Downey Jr. Supposedly, Downey Jr. might have scheduling conflicts with Gravity and Sherlock Holmes too, and have to drop out of the former where he's merely a supporting character, but there is reason to hope, because Warner Brothers is in charge of both of these productions, they'll probably do their best to work things out so the actor can appear in both movies, at least we can hope so. Now let's move on to the meat of this week's segment, sequels, prequels, and remakes. These make up the holy trinity of modern Hollywood movies, and we're getting a whole slew of them coming up over the next few years, some of them much more exciting than others. Some sequel-prequel-remake projects that have recently been in the headlines are the Rocky Horror Picture Show remake, which might be directed by Glee creator Ryan Murphy, the Footloose remake starring Kenny Warmald and Julian Howe instead of Kevin Bacon and Laurie Singer, the Top Gun sequel that may or may not have anything to do with Tom Cruise, and Robert Zemeckis' 3D remake of the Beatles' cult classic animated movie Yellow Submarine. All of those get a big eh, of indifference for me, aside from the Rocky Horror remake, which just sounds like an awful idea no matter how you look at it. But there are also a lot of really big-name sequel prequel remakes potentially in the works as well that are slightly more intriguing, if not exciting. Firstly, the one that a blind and deaf person could see and hear coming from a mile away, James Cameron's Avatar sequels. The director plans on introducing some more innovative movie making technology in the sequels, and some of it actually sounds really cool. Modern movies are shot and projected at a rate of 24 frames per second, and have been that way for almost a century. While it's not necessarily a new idea to shoot at an even higher frame rate, Cameron might be the first one to try to do it in a major Hollywood release. While I'm not a fan of 3D really at all, I'm definitely interested in seeing some of this high frame rate technology in action. The few people who have been invited to see demonstrations of the technology, such as critic Roger Ebert, says that it creates perfect lifelike depth and realism in the image. Sounds cool. 20th Century Foxes we can expect Avatar 2 and 3 in 2014 and 2015, respectively. There's never any doubt that J.J. Abrams' Star Trek remake, which brought home the bacon and love from audiences and critics, would be getting a sequel. So far, there's little to no news available on the project, but the writers have put one major question to rest. Would Khan be the villain in Star Trek two? You know, the the new Star Trek two, not the old one. Yeah, okay. The answer from the writers? No. Abrams has even said there might not be a traditional bad guy at all. Very mysterious, but the word on the streets that the writers will bring in a classic character from the original Star Trek television show. a source from inside the production has narrowed the list down to Harry Mudd, Chlanne, Gary Mitchell, the Telosians, and the Horta. I'm sorry if I mispronounced any of those. I have no idea who or what any of these people or things is, but I'm sure at least one Trekkie out there is squealing with excitement at this moment. As for yet another inevitable sequel, we're starting to get a little bit of news about Christopher Nolan's third Batman movie. Nolan confirmed in an interview last Wednesday that the third movie will be titled The Dark Knight Rises, and that it will not feature the Riddler. Yeah, when I said a little bit of news, I meant it. Nolan was very cryptic on all other points and did not mention any new villains or who they might be. But one other thing we do know for sure is that Nolan has managed to convince Warner Bros. to let him shoot the film in IMAX and not 3D. Nolan said that he and his crew want to preserve the look and feel of the first two movies, and that using 3D would completely clash with this continuity. That news has made me very, very happy. Thank you, Christopher Nolan, for sticking it to the man and not taking Batman into 3D because it's suddenly the cool thing to do. A lot of Hollywood directors could learn some principles of integrity from a guy like this. Hmm. Speaking of George Lucas, the director supposedly got in the itch to direct more Star Wars movies while he was working on the 3D conversions of the six original movies that I told you guys all about a couple weeks back. That, and also the fact he'd probably noticed that Avatar made roughly infinity dollars at the box office last year. I could certainly see a sort of rivalry develop between Cameron and Lucas over the next few years. Lucas has always fancied himself the technological innovator in Hollywood, coming out with all the crazy new technology and owning all the top effects companies such as Skywalker Sound, Industrial Light & Magic, THX, and more. Now Cameron's trying to take over that role in the industry, with the 3D technology he introduced in Avatar and the advanced frame rate capturing technology he plans to bust out in the sequels. We'll have to wait and see what happens, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a fistfight break out between the two at the Academy Awards in a few years. Oh, you know I'm joking. Why would Lucas ever be at the Academy Awards? Probably the most artistically relevant sequel-prequel remake in the works is the Goodfellas prequel, which Martin Scorsese has just officially attached himself to. But here's the plot twist. It's going to be a Goodfellas TV show. That would be Scorsese's second television show after Boardwalk Empire, which premiered earlier this fall and brought major ratings to HBO. Scorsese serves on that show as executive producer and occasional director. It's not yet known what Scorsese's involvement will be on the Goodfellas show, but it will probably be something major. Now, I'd just like to end this segment with what I think is the most exciting out of any and all recently announced sequels, prequels, or remakes, a new Muppet movie. So far, the cast looks solid. Jason Siegel, Rashida Jones, Chris Cooper, and now Zach Galifianakis looks like he's on board with the project. But the best part of all, Amy Adams is set to star in it. Aside from the fact that I legitimately love her, it's totally the perfect kind of role for her. For anybody who saw her incredible work in Disney's live-action musical Fairytale Enchanted in 2007, you know the Muppet movie's gonna be a perfect fit for her. This has been the Sherman Tank with your weekly update of entertainment news.
0: Hello everybody, this is Andrew W.K., you're tuned in and listening to RLCWVPH Piss Cataway. My name is Andrew W.K., as I said earlier, and you are listening to the news on 90.3 The Core.
4: This is The Core News, reminding you not to drink and drive. When consuming alcohol, make sure you always have a designated driver or a bicycle and a helmet. Also, remember to eat your vegetables. Call your grandmother and warm up before any strenuous exercise. And don't litter. This has been a Core News Public Service announcement.
0: that's all for this week's edition of The Core News. We will be back next Monday at 7 p.m. right here on 90.3 The Core. Or, if you're really, really busy, you've got a lot to do. You can't be nailed down to one place at one time. Well, then you can always check out our podcast. That's online via the Internet at www.thecore.fm. If you're really getting into that whole Internet thing and you've got some questions, maybe some suggestions... Maybe you'd like to join the CORE News team because, darn it, there's news happening and you want to let people know about it? Well, then you can send us some email to news at thecore.fm. The CORE News has been brought to you by Amy Bronstein, Rebecca Berkowitz, Nana, The Sherman Tank, Stephen Yannick, and Mindy Hoffman. You've been listening to The CORE News on 90.3 the core.